This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. Well, good morning, everybody. We've got some... uh, different equipment up here and I think I managed to turn it on correctly so we'll see of course I got to turn on the speaker there I knew I was forgetting something all right uh, it is good to be back with you uh, so good you know if there's one thing that uh, I've been thinking about during this period of time where we were separate is how easy it is to take for granted the opportunity to meet together with brothers and sisters in Christ, and more importantly for someone like me, I'm a very uh, independent person, I guess you could say, Uh, and I don't always realize how much I'm relying on other people until they're gone, and when you leave me by myself, well, you get a uh, sometimes a pretty miserable person, ask Charity (laughs) if you want some uh, proof of that, because we, we really do rely on one another. Our temperaments, our encouragement, so much of what we rely on to get through the day-to-day life has been provided to us by God through this church. And uh, I wanted to talk about that today because there is uh, this COVID-19 pandemic that's going on. It's brought about a unique time to talk about the subject of whether or not uh, you know, church even matters in today's world. And there's a couple of things that I wanted to introduce with that other people have said. First of all, as I researched, I learned that the Episcopal Church refers to the Sunday after Easter as Low Sunday. They do that because it has the lowest attendance of worship of any Sunday of the year. Uh, It's a common lament in mainline churches that attendance at worship on Sunday morning and not just that Sunday after Easter doesn't reflect their membership numbers and you know the general sentiment is usually well I don't have to go to church to be a good Christian Uh, and then there's this other story I found it was published about 10 years ago I just want to read it to you this is their words and listen to this it's now common parlance that we live in an era of virtual reality in which we will have the increasing capacity to go places meet people and experience things out of body Distances will be bridged. Culture culture will be readily available. Plans are underway for us to experience or have the bodily sensation of being in the Louvre, standing in awe before the Mona Lisa without the inconvenience of other tourists. Children have video games with virtual pets they carry around in their pockets and care for without the inconvenience of the mess that accompanies such a relationship. There's a company in Hong Kong called Artificial Life that has created a 3D virtual friend named Vivian who can be taken anywhere, can converse with you on 35,000 topics and handle 78,000 questions on banking alone. And if you marry her in a virtual ceremony, her virtual mother-in-law will call your cell phone in the middle of the night. This is not a joke. And this company's slogan is, you can't consummate the marriage with her, but you'll want to. And on the Christian front, you can join Spirit to Go, an internet community of other disaffected believers who blog about their life in Christ, or perhaps you'd like to be discipled by a man in California on Sunday mornings without the effort of going to church. Ironically, there is more possibility for human interaction than ever before, but this contact is not face-to-face but virtual, made by lonely individuals staring at computer screens. Virtual reality and the concept of virtual spirituality can only exist in cyberspace, not in the real world. It might engage our mind, but it can only uh, simulate spirituality. That was written uh, over 10 years ago, but it sounds like something that could have been written this month, doesn't it? This is a unique time in our country's history. For the first time in probably all of our lives, gathering as the church has been discouraged or even banned due to this pandemic that's sweeping the world. And in response to this, you know, Christians have turned to virtual service, uh, home service, perhaps no service at all. Uh, In many cases, virtual services have been elaborate enough that some will say they felt absolutely no disconnect or interruption to their worship services. And still others may say that they don't see church services as really being crucial because they ended up feeling more connected to God 
individually and away from formal church services. Now, my goal today is not to get into a commentary on whether any of this is right or wrong. What I want to do is examine why we go to church. Um, we seek in this church fellowship. And I wonder that can we articulate why we meet to others and sometimes do we even know it ourselves? I mean, we do things, but do we always know why? And so that's the purpose of the study this morning. Uh, this is important because, you know, we're told in the Bible to go to church for many different reasons. We know that it's not church attendance that saves us. Uh, and there's a valid number of valid reasons why someone may not be able to go to church. You know, it could be an injury, it could be their work schedule. There's all kinds of reasons why that are perfectly acceptable, why someone may not find themselves in a church service. However, in a time where there could be significant pressure placed on us to not meet, do we understand enough ourselves to explain to others and push ourselves in spite of worldly influences and pressures to meet? So my goal today is to take an in-depth look at this passage of Scripture you see up on the screen there. Because it's usually the most commonly cited scripture that talks about whether or not we are commanded to meet. Uh, let's go ahead and turn there and read that real quick. <clears throat> Hebrews 19, 19-25. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Now when I say in depth, I am going to go a little bit more in depth than is normal for this scripture and I hope to bear that out for you throughout the study. But the first thing I want you to know is that this scripture constitutes a single sentence in the original Greek, not multiple like here in your English Bibles. That means that the writer of Hebrews didn't want you to just read verse 25. He wanted you to read all of it. We're told to draw near in verse 22 to something. And... I think that you'll see that by gathering to worship, it's something that we do that's a behavior that grows out of being touched by Christ's sacrifice. And that is the entire point of this scripture. And worship is a necessary part of that process. And that's what we're going to get into here. So let's take a deeper look at these scriptures. First of all, what are we instructed to draw near to? The word rendered holiest in verse 19 of the King James Version here is the Greek word hagion. And that indicates a spot that is holiest, the most separate of all, the holy place, the sanctuary. And we're going to refer to this particular thing here as the sanctuary going forward. This spot was where the presence of God dwelt in the earthly temple. <clears throat> we'll have a diagram up of this later. Only the high priest could enter this sanctuary, and that was only after certain purification was accomplished. It was once a year. It was on the Day of Atonement. The thing to take away from this is that only one person could enter and access to God was restricted. You and I could not have gone in there. The reason why is we weren't high priests. We weren't allowed in because we were impure. We would not have been accepted by God. Yet here in verse 19, the writer of Hebrews changes all that. Turns it upside down on his head. He encourages us to approach and enter this most holy of places by the blood of Jesus. Now, first of all, we need to understand the writer is not talking about the earthly Jewish temple at this point. He is talking about the heavenly sanctuary. That is what the earthly temple was a shadow of, a type of. This heavenly sanctuary should be understood to be identical with heaven itself, the place where the throne of God is. This is made clear in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. But ye are coming to Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. We aren't talking about a structure here. We're talking about the place where the very presence of God is located, and that is in heaven. 
There are two main characteristics of this heavenly sanctuary. The presence of God and undisturbed communion with Him, just like they exist in heaven and in the age to come. Now it's very important to understand that the sanctuary is not only the place where God is, but it's the place where a worshiping community is serving Him. Why? Because if the sanctuary mentioned is just the place where God is, then every single individual in here who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit has already found God and therefore doesn't need anyone else to approach Him. But we know that God and Christ are surrounded by ministering angels. And worship involves all of them, according to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6. This sets a precedence then that worship involves us joining in with a group that includes the heavenly assembly of the angels and the saints. That's what we're doing this morning. If we, were to, if we continue reading in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22, it says, But ye are coming to Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, Jesus, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Because of Christ, we are come to the very place where angels and other saints are already engaged in the worship of God. That's not just you and God. There is a social aspect to worship. So the first point is that the holiest that's mentioned in our text in verse 19 is not a building on this earth. It is the heavenly place where the throne of God is. But what is most important here is not what that, you know, where that sanctuary is. It's how to enter it. The word boldness in verse 19, that's the Greek word parhesia, meaning assurance, confidence, freely, openly, plainly, and it simultaneously implies that we can approach the holiest knowing that we have God-given permission to do so, and as a result, we should have the personal confidence and frankness that comes from having that permission from God Himself. The permission to enter confidently is given by the blood of Jesus through His atonement. Now remember, atonement means compensation for a wrong. Unlike the Israelites, who when they approached Mount Sion, it was with fear and trembling. Exodus 20 verses 18 through 21 talks about that. We can approach God in boldness because of Christ's righteousness, not our own. Now this all sets us up to, our, to understand verse 20 of our text. Verse 19 informs us that it was through Christ's blood, not simply His ascent, that the way to the sanctuary was open. When we say sanctuary, this is what we're talking about. The Holy of Holies. Right? And right here, this was the veil, the curtain, that kept the Holy of Holies hidden. <clears throat> and this, uh, this new and living way, it says that that veil, that curtain, that that is Jesus' flesh. Now under the Old Covenant... Blood was sprinkled on the tent when it was the tabernacle and it was sprinkled towards that curtain when it was the temple and it was sprinkled on all these inched implements that were in the temple and the purpose was to purify them. And that would then make passing through the curtain of the Holy of Holies acceptable. It wasn't that that curtain was a true physical barrier that physically could keep you out. You could push past a curtain if you wanted to. The point was that it kept God hidden. That was the idea. And to indicate that no one was permitted to enter it except for that high priest on the Day of Atonement. Where he would intercede on behalf of the people, animals uh, through, through prayer to God, through animal sacrifice, and by providing a scapegoat for the people to deal with the problem of sin. The blood of the animals was meant to purify, to atone, to pay for the sin. Now the corresponding true heavenly sanctuary, it's purified by something far better. Christ's blood. Christ's blood. But what about this matter of the veil that's mentioned in verse 20? Because this passage of Scripture, if you just read it, it's confusing if you don't know what it's talking about. How is the veil Christ's flesh? Well, this is because His flesh is the point where the heavenly and the earthly worlds meet. That heavenly sanctuary and here on this earth. 
His flesh is where it meets. But it meets in a way that leaves the heavenly world hidden, but gives access to it. Just like that veil between the Holy of Holies and the holy place in the temple. When Christ left the earthly existence, the way to the sanctuary was revealed. It says in the Bible that the, the veil was torn in twain in that physical temple because Christ made a way for us to get through there. And it was His, uh, it was his sacrifice. Here I go hitting a bunch of buttons here. Okay, the main point is this. Keep this in your mind. We can only approach God or pass through that veil or that curtain through the sacrificial work of Christ, which is the new covenant. Verse 21 in our text is a transition now. It basically says that because 19 and 20 are true, that we should do something in verse 22. Stick with me on this. I know this uh, can be boring or confusing, but it all makes sense in the end. Before we move on to verse 22, I want to examine the house of God that's, that's identified in verse 21. What is His house? It might seem that the house of God it's talking about here is the same as that heavenly sanctuary we already discussed where God's throne is at. But one scholar points out that there's this analogy in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 that shows this isn't exactly what's meant. The house of God is slightly different than the holy of holies we were talking about. Let's turn to Hebrews 3, start reading in verse 3. For this man, speaking of Christ here, was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath built the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. What we see here is that this expression, the house of God, includes things and persons that are related to the sanctuary, otherwise known as a household. Now, this is why it can be said that we are his house, his household, if we hold fast our confidence and hope in verse 6. Now, it's important to understand this concept if one's going to understand why attending church service is important. When you examine this word house, it is the Greek word oikos, meaning dwelling, a family, a home, a house, and a temple. This is the same word that Jesus used for the tabernacle where David and his men ate the showbread that was forbidden for them to eat. Now let's look at something else. In the New Testament, there are two words used for the word temple, Iron and naos. Iron refers to the entire temple complex, the whole thing. But naos refers to something else. It signifies the proper habitation of God. In the Greek, the oikos tau theo. There's that word oikos again. What house is referring to in verse 21 of Hebrews 10 is the heart and center of the whole temple. Both the holy place where only the priests could go and the holy of holies where the presence of God dwelt and only the high priest could go. The whole thing. That is the house of God that we're talking about at this point. This is the sanctuary from verse 19. This is the house of God from verse 21. Two different things. Or two distinct things, I should say. We can now go to where only the priests and the high priest could go before once a year. We have continual, perpetual access to God because Jesus, our high priest, went before us, gave his blood, and opened the way. Now go back to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 3 through 6, and try to better understand what this is saying. It's saying that Christ built his house, and we, plural, are that house singular. Simply put, each one of us here represents a brick, a spiritual brick, if you will, fitted together to form the spiritual holy of holies where the presence of God is. This temple is here. It is us. It is the people of the church. The church is where God is. It's where you want to be. It's where before Jesus we could not be. That's what the church is. 
You know, some people don't understand what the church is. The church is this most holy place that only one person, the whole plant, could go once a year, and even he really wasn't worthy, so he had to do all this stuff to go in there. And on top of that, we couldn't even get into this place where only the priests were. In fact, for us, there would have been a place called the Court of the Gentiles way out, recessed below everything else because the nature of the temple was it was tiered. And different people, you went from the Gentiles to the, uh, to the women, to the Jewish men, to the priests, to where, you know, and up it went. And it was demonstrating there was a hierarchy in that Jewish society. And if you weren't the right person, you didn't get to a part of that temple. And what that meant ultimately for you is you couldn't approach God. Why? You weren't worthy. That was the reality of the temple. But Christ has built a new temple. It's us. Now remember something. I said we're all spiritual bricks. Think about this. A brick on its own is just a brick. But many bricks fitted together form incredible things. Again, I know that this can be confusing, but here's what this means. God is a spirit, and His dwelling place is a spiritual dwelling place. His throne is in heaven. In times past, He descended to the earth and manifested His presence in a physical location so that His people could approach Him. This place was first the tabernacle, and then later it was the temple. At this temple, the people of God could gather together as God desired them to, as He commanded them to, for worship, prayer, and to have the high priest intercede on their behalf. This earthly temple's gone now. Destroyed. It was rebuilt, destroyed again. It's not there right now. <clears throat> but we're told in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 3 through 6, that Christ built this new house for God, this new temple, that the temple is the church, that the location of the throne of God is the same today as it was in the time of Moses. It's up in heaven. But that temple existed for the primary purpose of identifying a place God came down to. To meet with His people, to dwell amongst them. In Moses' time, that was a physical building. In our time, it is our spiritual bodies joined together in the temple that Christ built. That is the church. This building is built of spiritual bricks. It's not this building here. It's you and I. We are the building. Isaiah 28 verse 16 says, Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, Look, I am placing a foundation stone in Jerusalem, a firm and tested stone. It is a precious cornerstone that is safe to build on. Whoever believes need never be shaken. Notice here that this temple that we've been talking about, this church, it's not independent. Christ is the cornerstone. In biblical times, you know, cornerstone was used as the foundation standard upon which a building was constructed. You know, once this stone was in place, the rest of the building would conform to the angles and size of that cornerstone. Additionally, if you remove that cornerstone, the building would collapse. If you remove Christ from this church, the spiritual building collapses. But it does not stop there. This cornerstone and you and I, that's not the only thing comprising the temple structure. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 says, together we are His house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus Himself. So not only is Christ the cornerstone of the spiritual temple, but the foundation of the temple is built upon the work of those who came before us, starting with the apostles and the prophets. Their words, that Bible, the things they did, the things that were established, the churches that were planted. Together, Christ has formed us into the place where God manifests Himself so that we may come and worship Him, pray, and have the High Priest Jesus intercede on our behalf. The idea of Christianity being only about a personal relationship with Christ is here demonstrated to be an incomplete picture. And this is critically important for us to understand. So the question then becomes, is the temple of God many individual temples, or is it one temple? When we say that each individual body is the temple of God, that can be both true and untrue, dependent upon what we mean by that. Let me show you why in Scripture. 
Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting reading in verse 15. He says, Know ye not that your bodies, plural, are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members, that word members here, that is the Greek word melos, which refers to a limb or part of the body. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? There's a double meaning here. It's talking about fornication with a harlot and it's also talking about idolatry. For two, saith he, shall be one flesh, but he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Why is this a double meaning? The Bible uses adultery, cheating on your wife or husband, as a symbolic way of describing what happens when we sin against God, when we seek things other than God. So any time that you say, see sin for the sake of this, you could say that was an act of fornication, of adultery against God. You understand what I'm saying? So he's saying flee a fornication, then it says flee every sin. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth uh, fornication sinneth against his own body. So there's two things it's talking about here. The physical earthly act of fornication and a spiritual type of fornication, all tied into one. He says in verse 19, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you? which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Two things highlighted there, your body and your spirit. <clears throat> now we're familiar with verse 19, I'm sure. And we oftentimes rightly apply it to our individual bodies. Our bodies, when they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit as saved Christians, function as the temple of God. That is true. But you can't just take verse 19 on its own because just prior to that in verse 15, it says that our bodies are members of Christ's body and that this body is joined together as one flesh in verse 16 and into one spirit in verse 17. So that when you come to verse 19, it's referring not only to your individual body, but the body of Christ as a whole. You and I, the church of which Christ is the head. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 16 says, And what agreement hath the temple of God, your body, with idols? For ye, and this should be understood as being addressed to the collective church, for ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, back again to Hebrews 3 verse 6. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we? If we hold fast to the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Remember that word oikos. It means both family and temple. And this is why I spend so much time when I get up here and speak to you talking about Greek and Hebrew words because the English language doesn't do justice to those languages. They have so much meaning invested in those words, sometimes double meanings that mean two things at once, but because of the way it's translated, we may miss it. So when you see temple here, it's talking about your, uh, it's talking about two different things here. It's talking about family and temple, not just your body, the temple, the family, the temple, both. This is critically important. And you'll notice I'm going through the entire book of Hebrews, tying this all together. When you take this one verse out of context, it becomes easy to argue against it. So as we go through here, I'm trying to tie it all together, not just to teach us, but so that we can better teach people. So keep an eye on what comes next here. <clears throat> now, we know that the journey toward God through Christ is not an individualistic affair, right? It's a family affair. It's a body of Christ affair. It's a church affair, and we need one another. Christ is engaged to marry one body, one church. He is high priest in one house, one temple built of many well-fitted bricks designed to form that temple. He's not engaged to a pile of bricks 
that aren't related to one another beyond the fact that they're all bricks. Do you understand what I'm saying here? Being a Christian is not just about a personal relationship with Christ. There is that. But it's so much more. It's about becoming a part of the family of God. And having a place in that body and a function for that body. And if I'm not in that body, functioning as God made me to function for that body, then I'm just a brick. Just a brick. Just a brick. One brick does not make a house. It doesn't make an entire temple and it was never designed to. Think about it. That is what we're reading about so far in Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 verse 21 says, Christ is high priest over a house. Singular. Not many houses which all supposedly belong to Him but are separate. Why am I harping on this? Because I am sick to death of hearing people say, I don't need the church. All I need is me and Christ. That's all that matters. That is a lie from Satan. Don't you believe it? Don't you believe it? And don't you let other people believe it? Young people, don't wander away from church. If you don't understand the value yet, turn to Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19, and really dig into what these scriptures are saying. All of this that we've been talking about is leading up to a command. And we're going to get to that in a minute. So, having established that we have access to God through Christ, what's next? Hebrews 10, verse 22. Now, this has some very important symbolism, and this is where it can get confusing if you don't understand what the symbolism is. We're instructed to draw near, but with some stipulations. We're told that we are to have a true heart and full assurance of faith, having hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now remember that Hebrews is addressed to Jewish converts. That's why it's called Hebrews. They're Christians, but they're Jewish converts. They understood Judaism. They understood the temple. They understood the Old Testament. And as such, the symbolism here is drawn from the Old Testament. So, it's very important we understand this. And I don't think that because this was addressed to a Jewish convert that what's being said here doesn't apply to you. God inspired the writer of Hebrews to use Jewish symbolism to illustrate a point to a particular audience. That's true. But the truth that's being communicated is true for Jew and Gentile. It's a timeless truth. And we need to understand that symbolism. And this also, as an aside, is why... Don't ever let anybody tell you another lie. That the Old Testament's irrelevant and shouldn't doesn't matter, it's just a, a history document. No, it is not. It's all part of a complete picture. Because if you don't understand the Old Testament, you will never really understand the new. So that is why the inspired writer of Hebrews decided I'm going to tie in some symbolism with I'm going to explain to audiences for till the end of time how this ties together with the Old Testament. So first, there's a sprinkling of the blood in Hebrews 10.22. That refers to the fact that we've been sprinkled by the blood of the New Covenant, just as the Israelites were sprinkled by the blood of the Old Covenant at Sinai. Exodus 24, verses 4 through 8. In the interest of time, I'm going to skip all the way down to verse 8. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. He sprinkled that blood just like we are to be sprinkled with the blood of the new covenant. Second, it says bodies washed with pure water in Hebrews 10.22. This refers to ritual washing or baptism. One scholar points out that according to rabbinical exegesis, now if you don't know what that is, that's what the teachers of Judaism have to say about something. Is that inspired word? No. Are they the experts on it? Yes. They say that according to rabbinical exegesis, the people at Sinai had taken a ritual bath. Now, ritual is defined as a religious or solemn ceremony consisting of a series of actions performed according to a prescribed order. This conclusion was drawn either from the sanctification of the people that you can read about in Exodus 19, verse 10 and 14, or simply from the Jewish rule that there was no sprinkling without a bath or baptism. Now the clear implication here for us 
is that one first must be sprinkled by, covered with the blood of Christ. And then they have to obey by being ritually washed in baptism in order to fully enter into the new covenant with God and become a part of the church. Now there's another piece of symbolism here and that's tied to the initiation of the priest. The priests had to wash themselves every single time they entered that sanctuary. And in the New Testament times, a full ritual bath was required. According to the Mishnah, which is the first major written collection of what at that time was the Jewish oral tradition known as the Oral Torah. This was a significant part of consecration for service in the temple and it was a necessary condition to be allowed to approach God. You want to approach God? Go clean yourself up with some water to summarize, right? <clears throat> for us, I want you to remember what is said in 1 Peter 2 verse 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. What the writer of Hebrews has managed to do is effectively portray the new people of God as the house, the family group of the high priest Jesus. And together we form a priestly family just like the Levites did for the old temple. The water that the Christian is washed with is the water of baptism. We have to be baptized in order to enter the heavenly sanctuary is what this is saying. Slide uh, On this uh, next slide here, we kind of list it out. The stipulations are, we have to understand our lost condition, believe in and accept the atoning work of Christ. We have to repent of our sins and obey Him by entering into the watery grave of baptism, thereby becoming part of Christ's church and members of the royal priesthood who have access to the very presence of God. This is all encapsulated in Hebrews 10 verse 22. But you'll never know that if you don't go and investigate the symbolism that's used. How many times have you heard people trying to prove that any of what we just discussed is actually necessary? Here it is. It's tied to and explains the correlation with the Old Testament. It's all there. But we have to dig in. So it's tied all together. As members of a priestly community, we are exhorted to draw near. That is to approach through that curtain I showed you, which is Christ, Christ's flesh, to worship in the heavenly sanctuary. The idea is not that we should ascend to heaven through some mystical experience but that we should come before God whose throne is in heaven, but who comes to be amongst us in His temple, whose temple we are. Not this church building, us. So what does this worship that we're talking about, what does it look like? Well, first of all, it means prayer. If you go to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, you'll see that worship through thanksgiving and prayer is a responsibility of a priest. And remember, we're, we are a royal priesthood. But there's more. <clears throat> now go back to our text. Hebrews 10 verses 23 through 24 tells us that we must, as a part of our worship, hold fast the profession of our faith and consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Let's turn to Hebrews 13. We're going to read verses 15 and through 16 because this thought is elaborated on here. Alright? Text is from Hebrews 10. He builds on it in Hebrews 13, starting verse 15. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice, priests offer sacrifice, of praise to God continually. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Now that's from the King James Version. So your wording may be different. But the word communicate here in verse 6 is the Greek word koinonia. And that means participation, social intercourse, benefaction, communicate, communion, distribution, fellowship. That's right. Here we're told that the sacrifice God wants from His priest, you and I, is to continually, which this word here means for all time, for us to praise Him, thank Him, do good works, and fellowship together. Koinonia is such a special term. It is used 20 times in the Bible, 
and it promotes a type of love and service toward one another that can only be realized through continually spending time with one another and ensuring that we all make this journey together with all of our strengths, supporting all of our weaknesses and faults together. We're told how this should look in several places. Ephesians 5, 19-20 Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Prayer, singing, worship, thankfulness, joy. Colossians 3, 16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, teaching, admonishing, correcting one another in both songs and singing. And it says to do so with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Grace given to us from God that we are forgiven as sinners and grace toward each other because sin is still present. And God forgave us, we forgive each other. We have grace in our hearts toward one another. 1 Timothy 4, verse 13, Paul talking to Timothy, Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. If you're not in the Word daily, you're not being fed. If you're only relying on your understanding of what's there, you're getting an incomplete picture. Because by design, we don't all have all the same tools. In order to get the full benefit of that study, we have to come together and teach one another. Correct one another. Some people don't like the idea of church discipline. Well, it's not because we're trying to cause trouble. It's because God knows that we need accountability on this earth. We need humility. And we'll get that when we're corrected. And someday we'll have it when we have to correct someone else because we've been corrected. And since we know that these attitudes and actions are sacrifices, as we read in chapter 13 of Hebrews, we are giving to God. So it's appropriate to read 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give. Not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. You see, we don't just give money. We give of our time, our talents, our support, our empathy, our sympathy, our worship, our fellowship, and more. God wants us to be cheerful givers of these sacrifices which are pleasing to Him. Do you hate going to church? Do you grudgingly fellowship? God loves a cheerful giver. And these are the sacrifices he has called us to make. You do that with the church. When we look again at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 24, <clears throat> understand there's another facet to holding fast to our profession of faith without wavering. <clears throat> In Hebrews 13, 13, it says, Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp bearing his approach. What's the camp? The church the safety it provides, the common ground it provides. He says, get, you're going to have to go forth out of that church sometimes, out of the safe confines of your brothers and sisters in Christ, and bear the reproach of Christ to a hateful, spiteful world. But he says, we should cling to the promise. Be willing to endure suffering and live as strangers in the world. Brothers and sisters in Christ, persecution of the church is coming. Not just to some other place. Here. It's coming to us. And it's going to become easier and easier to avoid what causes us pain. Conversely, it will become harder and more challenging to be bold for Christ in this world and in our worship. It's going to become more and more of a sacrifice for us to have, to ha to have that type of koinonia fellowship with one another. And yet we're told to hold fast why? Because he is faithful that promised. That's why. Why do you go to church? Why do you, why do you fight that fight? Why do you make those sacrifices? Why do you suffer people's ridicule of you? Because Christ is faithful and he said a few things to us, didn't he? Made a few promises to us, didn't he? 
We have this new covenant, don't we? We have this temple where He's the veil and He moves it aside and lets us go into the presence of God, doesn't He? And we're going to be that way forevermore, aren't we? And so because of that, we do this. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6, 16 through 20. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation for this passage. For those of you who've heard me before, I prefer the King James Version because it's a word-for-word translation of the Textus Receptus. And uh, I will sometimes use other translations for the sake of uh, explaining better. And that's what we're doing here. But when it comes to your own personal study and exegesis, I suggest you find a word-for-word translation of the Bible because every word in the Bible matters. Verse 16 of Hebrews 6. Now when people take an oath... They call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise, you and I, could be perfectly sure he would never change his mind. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It will keep us grounded in this life. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He's become our eternal priest in the order of Melchizedek. Beloved, this is why we hold fast and do not waver in the profession of our faith. <clears throat> and this is just this is not just assenting to a doctrine. It's not just saying I believe in this. Holding fast is in itself an act of confessing Christ to each other. And if you missed it in some of these verses we've been reading, we were told <clears throat> continue to confess Christ to each other and the world. Not just the world. We get that mixed up sometimes, don't we? We think, well, I, I made my confession in front of the church. They know what I think. All i got to worry about is telling other people in the world. No. We have specific instructions to continually profess Christ to each other. And how do we do that? By coming together as the church and doing the list of things that we've been seeing here. We have a great hope, and that hope leads us into worship as the church. I didn't say it, the Bible said it. Our hope, if we have it, will lead us to worship with the church. That's what Hebrews 6 verse 19 is saying. And I'll tell you something, having been apart for so many weeks, eight weeks or so, one thing I saw was the hope in in this congregation because we were grieving over our separation. And we were eagerly seeking and looking forward to coming back together. Yeah, it's a little awkward. We don't know who we should shake hands with or hug and who we shouldn't. doesn't matter. Some people are doing like this and don't even want to fist bump. That's perfectly okay. And some people are just, let me, you know, come and give you a big old kiss. The point is, you can see our hope because of the love we have for each other. That's what matters. And let me just suggest to you that if you don't have a desire to meet with the church, you may not fully understand or even have that hope you think you have. Which may mean that you're not truly saved. Which may mean you'd better get back in the Bible and maybe you can start what we're talking about this morning and read about why church is important and the function that it serves. Just a thought. Praise God. We have a mighty hope before us. Praise God. It's evident in our desire to worship together. And I want you to remember, verses 23 and 24 of Hebrews 10, they're tied together. Our worship must include us loving one another, teaching one another, encouraging one another to do good works and live good lives. Think about this. When we demonstrate, what we demonstrate in meeting together is something that's not found in the world. When we practice quantity of fellowship, we're practicing in another form of evangelism to the world. There's a quote here by a scholar named N.A. Dahl. 
And this is his insight. The relationship between the church and the individual Christian is not rightly understood if we do not sufficiently take account of the great stress laid upon the mutual responsibility of the brethren for each other. The idea in verse 24 is that if Christians are to approach in the assurance of faith and hold fast to the confession of their hope, they should consider how to stir up one another to faith and good works. The whole community should take care lest anyone become apostate, fall away, or grow weary. And this is possible only if Christians care for each other personally. There is a mutual responsibility of the individual for the community and of the community for the individual that is made explicit in verse 24. So what is the what now that we have the why? We finally come to verse 25. <clears throat> I'm sure some of you are wondering why I didn't just get to the point and start here. Because this verse is well known and it seems to be pretty clear, right? Well, let's, let's, let's read it. It says, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. The fact is, there are many detractors from the view that this verse is talking about church services. Just Google it. You'll find all kinds of scholarly articles that say that this has nothing to do with church worship services. I don't have the time to present and refute them in this particular lesson, but I took the approach I did this morning because I believe that when you understand verses 19 through 25 or one sentence in the Greek and that every idea is built upon the other, you can better understand that verse 25 is a conclusion drawn from what we should not do based on the facts, admonitions, and commands found in the preceding verses. We understand verse 25 is the only logical course after what we read in verses 19 through 24. Amen? Amen. So with that said, <clears throat> we're almost to the end here. I'm aware of the time, but you're going to have to let me get this out. It's important. With that said, let me just point out that the verse does not simply mean to, neglect, to not neglect to meet together. The verb that's used here, forsaking, is the Greek word enkadalipo, uh, meaning essentially to leave someone in a lurch. You see, the danger being alluded to here is not only that someone may fall into individual apostasy or isolationism. Now, that's not all it's talking about but that they might withdraw from the assembling together of the Christians. They might leave them to themselves instead of taking an active part in the assembly. And as a result, they leave the assembly in a lurch. Because we were told that Christians should encourage and exhort one another. If, believe me, Christian, you have a gift you may have multiple gifts that God gave you to use. If you're not here doing them, someday you will answer to God for why you left His body, His church, His temple without a priest in a lurch. And your priesthood may just be walking up and giving somebody a hug. It can be many things. It doesn't have to be up here leading a song, waiting on the communion table, giving a lesson, whatever. We're all equal priests. And sometimes... Just your presence. I don't need a whole lot of talk from you half the time. I just need to see you. That's why you'll typically see me acknowledge that you're here, smile, I'm glad to see you, and I go back to look in my songbook or something. Now, not everybody needs the same thing. But you're here. And you're serving a purpose, and sometimes your purpose differs from person to person. We're all part of that body. <clears throat> now there's a final warning in verse 25. And that is that during these perilous times, when we can see the end is near, assembling ourselves together as the church is more important than ever before. You want to know why I put this lesson together? Ever wonder how I come up with what I'm going to talk about? I try to pray about it, and I try to look at what's going on in the world, and right now what I'm about to tell you is why I gave the whole lesson. It says that we must do all this stuff because the day is approaching. And we can see the day approaching. Do you know why we absolutely should be here worshiping together? Because at any moment, Jesus may return. There's a great day coming. And Jesus had something to say about this. About perseverance in the last days. Matthew 24, verse 4. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you, 
For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nations shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines and pestilences, which is disease, and earthquakes in diverse places. All of these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many, read Christians here, be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound the love of many, again, read Christians here, shall wax cold, but he that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. Let's get down to verse 27. For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth to the west, that quick, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Brothers and sisters in Christ, these are not my words, they are Christ. So for those of you who might be thinking I'm being sensationalist or whatever because of what's going on in our current world, I'm not trying to be, I'm just reading you the Bible and what Christ said. He said that sorrows like pestilence, which is disease, will be a necessary coming sign of the beginning of sorrows, of the end times. He also said that the church will begin to be persecuted worse than ever during these days, and the church will be hated because of who we represent, Christ, and how we insist on continuing to function as His church. But worse yet, He said that because of these troubles and because of persecution, Christians will lose sight of their hope, lose their boldness, forsake one another, turn on one another, and the very love for Christ, their faith, will grow cold. Beloved, look around at the world, not us. Look around. The church has been under unprecedented attack for meeting in worship over these last eight weeks. And Christians are turning on one another in some cases. During these past weeks, I have seen terrible wishes of punishment and death <clears throat> upon those who would dare worship Christ when the world says it's no longer appropriate to do so. Where do I see that? I read a story on the news and I read the comments underneath it and the filth that people put in there. And believe me, people want to see people who would dare have met in any form or fashion, even if it's in a car with a rolled up window and a drive-in service at their church. I want them to die. They're selfish. Those are the kind of comments that are out there. Why? Because people were so adamant that they find some way to meet and worship. Sounds like persecution to me. There's nothing wrong with adjusting how we worship. We've done that these last weeks. We have not met in this building together for eight weeks out of love for others and concern for civil obedience. And I want to be clear that I'm not saying otherwise. But we also need to remember that Jesus warned that the day will come where our right to worship will be attacked. And those attacks will come sometimes even from within the body itself. So that is why I started with saying that we need to know why we come together. We should be able to explain it to ourselves and to others and why it's important to fight for it. It's worth fighting for it should that need ever arise. We should be prepared to maintain unity in that. We should believe that this gathering together in worship is our duty, it is our privilege, it is important, and we will do it until Christ comes in one form or another. We have to believe that. Where the Lord turn, returns today or tarries, Jesus our Lord gave us these signs so that we can be prepared. Does that mean that Jesus is coming tomorrow or something? And I know that. Of course not. The end times began back in Jesus' day, according to the Bible. We've been in the end times for a long time. But Christ also said that the beginning of sorrows can be noticed. It's coming can be noticed by what you see happening. Famine, pestilence, Adversity. But Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 40, 46, 
Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Persisting. Worshiping him. So in conclusion, if there was ever a time where we needed each other, it was yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Let me say that again. If there was ever a time where we needed each other, it was yesterday, today, and tomorrow. There's never been a time we didn't need to come together as a church, and there will never be a time where we don't need each other, and you don't let anything this world develops change your mind on that. Not because I said it, because the Bible's very clear on it. Very clear. So I want to leave you with a couple of verses that I love. They're positive. Brother Clint inspired me to put some of this down here because of what he was doing to encourage us while we were gone, and uh, Kalen used the very verse that he sent this morning in his opening remarks as one of them, but Psalms 133 verse 1, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. For the church, let's be unified. No matter what, in our strengths and in our weaknesses and mistakes, we are unified. We are unified. Galatians 6 verse 2, Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. No one is alone. No one walks alone. No one runs alone. No one falls alone. You seen that picture of the Marines hoisting the flag up? The statue? That's us. We're all there together. Some people laying on the ground. No doubt there's dead people around them that they don't depict in the statue. And then there's the people up at the top. The guy at the top isn't the most important person. He's standing on his fellows beneath him. And they're all helping do it. Bear one another's burdens. Bear every one of each other's burdens. Ephesians 4.16 He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. You take a part of the body off, it gets sick, it doesn't function right, it no longer grows. Keep the body together. Do your purpose within the body. If you're the hand, be a hand. If you're the foot, be the foot. If you're the butt, be the butt. Whatever you are, you do it. You do it. We don't all have to be the head. Christ is the head. He's already told us what we have to do. Acts 2.42 All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. Hmm. Well, that pretty much sums up everything we've been told we better not be doing right now, right? Thank God we live in Arkansas where it's just guidelines and not law, right? Because there's some states where it's illegal to be here. Some states where this is illegal in the United States of America. I don't care if there is a pandemic going on, folks. Fear not he who is able to kill the body, but he who is able to deliver both body and soul to hell. And what he told us we do. What he told us we do. Better make it happen one way or the other. Psalms 122 verse 1. This is the one Brother Clint sent. I want to give you some background. Clint, I hope I don't embarrass you. Uh, Clint is the type of leader where um, he's so clearly in charge at so many moments, but you just never really see it. Uh, you don't know that's what's going on. And he certainly doesn't advertise it. So the question was raised, what are we going to do about going back to church? You know, you got brothers who are trying to figure this out. People like me, I kind of sat back. I'm like, let's see what other people say. That's not leading, folks. That's, I should have said something. But I said nothing. I wanted to see what a few people had to say. And eventually, Clint speaks up. Other people spoke up too. I don't mean to detract in any way, but Clint stuck with me most memorably. And all he did was post this verse. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Brother, should we go back to church? Clint says, I was glad when they said unto me, go back into the house of the Lord. Right out of the Bible. Well, after that, the decision was made. We all agreed. Because it gave us perspective. And you know, that is something where I wasn't thinking along those lines until Clint did it. And if I hadn't had Clint as the church, and if we weren't making an effort to worship in our way and study in our way together during this time apart, I wouldn't have even thought of that verse. I might not have been led to deliver this message. But because of someone else in the body, 
I'm here today taking up your time past noon. It's wonderful what the body of Christ will do for you. So we barely scratched the surface of why worship is important, why we're called to gather together as Christ's church, and uh, of what our worship should look like, the importance of prayer, singing, praising God. Study this some more. Study this some more. I know this has been a long lesson. I've got a timer here. I've been talking for an hour. I hope you'll forgive me because this is a unique time where we needed to hear it. I, I, I really believe that. First Peter 3, 15 through 16. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereof, whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Be ready to give an answer on why we're meeting. Even if there's a pandemic going on. So if there be any present who wish to be baptized, or if there be any here who would like to request the prayers of the church, uh, we ask you to step forward as we stand and sing the invitation song. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71, Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.